Glory to God in the highest, and on, e- on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Do not think that I have come to bring peace. I have not. I have come to bring peace. I have not come to bring peace on earth, but a sword. Put the sword back in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to come into this place and to worship with your saints and to grow more in likeness of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask that you will open the words of your scriptures to us today and plant them deeply within us. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. Why does every good story need conflict? Last year I was teaching The Hobbit, probably somewhat ineffectively if we're honest, and one of my students asked, Mr. Two, why does every good story need conflict? Now I'm paraphrasing slightly, but that was the sense of the question. We all know this, right? We all know on an intuitive level that stories need conflict or they're not going anywhere, right? The Avengers may have to take up knitting if they can't throw the Volvos into aliens in Manhattan, right? Indiana Jones would still be boring students in first-year archaeology if not for conflict. We love to see conflict on the screens or in the pages, but we aren't too fond of it when it starts to break that fourth wall, are we? We would rather keep conflict at arm's length down on the page than in our lives, But what we're going to see today is this. Conflict is inevitable because God's kingdom is expanding into hostile territory. So we should expect conflict in our families, in our community, and in our country. Now over the past few weeks, Dick and Zach and I have been building this, as we've called it, impromptu series in Matthew's Gospel. More specifically, we've looked at the Sermon on Mission, where Jesus prepares his followers to carry the fire of Christ into the world. Now last week, Dick and Zach reminded us that In Christ's service, we should be wise as snakes, but innocent as doves. We should use the reason and gifts that God has given us to advance his kingdom, to expand it into ever new territories. But we should not expect this to be easy. He introduced us to all those animals. Remember the menagerie of suffering, the petting zoo of pain. I liked those. Those were good. I'm a sucker for a good turn of phrase. But he explained how Christ is sending us out as wolves, as sheep among the wolves. So we should not, ex- not be surprised when persecution or suffering come. And at this point, as he's teaching, I can imagine Jesus looking up and seeing the crowd and being met with some incredulous looks, some skepticism to say the least. And so Jesus is not afraid to mix metaphors. He begins, Do not think that I have come to the earth to bring peace. I have not come to bring, earth, bring, excuse me, bring peace, but a sword. Uh, hang on, perhaps I've gotten the wrong Christmas card, because the one I've got here says, Peace, goodwill towards men, and the return address says, Prince of Peace. And now you're telling us that you actually didn't bring peace. Mm-hmm. Okay. And instead you brought, what? Oh, a sword. Wonderful. Great. This is not how things were supposed to go. In the Old Testament, the prophecies about the Messianic Age were described as a time of peace. Think about Isaiah 11, for instance. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a child shall lead them. So when Jesus showed up and started talking about the kingdom and preaching repentance and the kingdom of God coming, people had a certain expectation. Peace in our time, finally. Yeah, about that. Jesus tells us his mission is going to look very different from what was expected, at least for now. The wolf and the lamb aren't cozying up together just yet. So the Gospels seem to be making these contradictory statements. Luke's Christmas story says that Christ came to bring peace, 
Christ says, oh, contraire, don't think I've come to bring peace. I'm packing a long blade. But he'll later tell Peter, put that thing away, because that's not what it's for. I'm sorry, in what world, in what world can we have such contradictory statements? We can have them in this one. Because our world is actually two worlds within it. It has two worlds in one. It has the old world and its old ways which are passing away. And there's the new world that Christ has brought and that is one day, it is coming and will one day take hold forever. So the Gospels can make statements about both worlds. The Gospels can predicate things of both kingdoms. Christ does bring peace for those who are in his kingdom. But the process by which we transition from one city to another is going to require conflict. It requires us to die to this world with Christ. We love the image of iron sharpening iron, right? But have you ever stopped to think about how that might feel to the iron? Probably not great. As Paul showed us in our epistle, we have to die with Christ in baptism and be raised to newness of life. So that's how we become citizens of this new kingdom. But right now we're caught in this weird topsy-turvy now but not yet sort of place. We have one foot in both kingdoms, in both worlds. We're the people who inhabit both worlds at once, and yet a man can only have one master. At a time when the Roman Empire was starting to fall apart, it was pretty popular to blame Christians. Hard to imagine, I know. So St. Augustine took up the task to explain how Christians live in this world as we anticipate the redemption of it in the next. He called his book The City of God. In essence, he taught that there are two cities. There's the city of God and the city of man. Now, the city of God is where God reigns supreme, and all human desires are rightly ordered towards him. On the other hand, we have the city of man. It is the earthly realm. It's the world of the body, of creation, of family, of community and country. And we live in the tension of these two cities. They're pulling us in opposite directions. It's not as simple as saying that one is good and the other is bad. That's overly simplistic. As Christians, we do not believe the material world is evil. We don't believe that. It's good, but it's fallen, and that's an important distinction for our discussion. We don't reject this world. We reject the primacy of this world. We reject the first nature importance of this world. We understand what this world is. It's not the sun that shines the light from itself. It's more like a moon which derives light from another. So when the world fell, the city of man became closed in on itself. It's a toy that thinks it's a real boy. It's a mirror that thinks it can make light. And when we look to the city of man to fulfill family or community, to family or community or country, any of these, to fulfill our highest and most intimate desires, we will be disappointed every single time. Because it's temporary, it's transient. The things of this world cannot bear the weight of eternity. Think about it like this. If I define myself using the things of this world, my identity is tied to something that's passing away. I've just handcuffed myself to an anchor, and that's what happens. Simply put, the things of this world cannot and are not strong enough to sustain the weight of our eternal desires. They're just not. So when we worship things of this world, we end up hurting and doing great damage to ourselves. We end up grabbing timely solutions for eternal problems. We want that earthy fix. This is how Augustine defined idolatry. We're guilty of idolatry when we worship things of this world. We worship the creation instead of the creator. Now note what I said there. Idolatry is rarely, again, some Indiana Jones-style statue that we bow down to with our dollar store votives and candles. Idolatry is rarely that. Idolatry means worshiping any part of this creation, whether it's good or bad. 
We have no golden calves, but I'm sure you've seen that picture of the golden bull of Wall Street. No Asherah poles, but ours is the time of angry politics. So this tension, this conflict, is the tenor of our faith in this world. And when Christ shows up, he forces us to decide which of these two worlds is the most important, which one's preeminent in us. We experience this sort of conflict being pulled this way and that, this war of the worlds, and that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here in this passage. In the next few verses, Jesus offers some clarity, which does not, if we're honest, bring much comfort. He says that this conflict he brings, the sword, will divide families. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, a mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. So is Jesus telling us here that we should hate our mother-in-laws? Did I hear a yes in the, no? Okay. Keep your amen silent on that one if you will. No, of course not. That's ridiculous. He's not telling us to hate people. He's explaining that his kingdom is going to force division. It's going to bring conflict because it forces us to recognize what's most important. And those moments of crisis sure have a funny way of sorting things out for us, don't they? He continues, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. There are times in this fallen world when our natural relations will have to take a back seat. That's a hard thing to say, and I hope you don't think I'm saying it flippantly. See, Jesus is the bull in the china shop of our lives. His kingdom comes crashing in and immediately starts trying to crowd out any other source or competition for allegiance or ultimate loyalty. Our God, we learn this time and time again in the Old Testament, is a jealous God. Wielding dual intelligence is, uh, excuse me, wielding dual allegiance is like having two masters. It just doesn't work in the long run. So Jesus is not telling us we should hate our family. He's telling us that our highest loyalty, our deepest understanding of ourselves, does not come from our families. It comes from him. Our values, our way of life, come not from the people who raised us, but from the Son of God. And whoever does not take this cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Jesus is calling us to accept this suffering and take on this conflict in our lives, but it's not just suffering for suffering's sake. As Deacon Zach said last week, we don't just face the world with this Stoic or Buddhist face of being unaffected. That's not us. No, we experience this disharmony because we've been drawn into God's rescue mission to the world. It's not simply take up your cross. That's not what he says. It's also follow me. We learned this too last week. We're being sent out as sheep to other sheep with wolves roaming around. Conflict is the expectation because God's kingdom is expanding into hostile territories and we get to be a part of it. I think all this brings us back to a central question. How then do we as citizens of one city live in another? Well, Jesus answers that here. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If you try to find yourself using the things of this world, you will be lost. But if you find yourself, if you understand your place in this world in light of the city of God, you will find it. But let me be clear, Jesus Christ still brings a sword today. So this morning, I want us to think through three situations that might help us see what it means to follow Jesus in family, in community, and in country. Now, the family is the most basic structure of most societies, and we get some of our best traits and probably some of our worst behaviors from our families, don't we? No? Just me. All right. We get our values from our families, though. 
But there are times when we have to choose to trust Christ over family. This doesn't mean we shun or hate our families. It just means that their thoughts, their teachings have to take a back seat to his. Christ brings a sword into our communal lives because simply put, there are things that Christians cannot do. And at times, we will be bound by conscience. This is going to put us at odds with the wider world around us, maybe even to the point of persecution in the future. We still believe that truth exists. I mean, that alone is enough to cause some rife, some strife in most of the communities we inhabit. But Augustine said that those who complain of Christianity really desire to live without restraint in shameful luxury. So when you add in this Christian approach to generosity and sexual ethics, buckle up, buttercup. It's going to be a bumpy ride. It's going to be a tough time in this world. Finally, Christ brings conflict into our lives as citizens of our country. Our civic lives today are exceedingly complex. And let me say this, talking about politics in the pulpit's a little bit, a little bit like trimming a cat's claws. Nobody wants to do it, but occasionally it has to be done. And when it's all over, you just hope nobody's bleeding. But you can relax. I'm not talking about small, t- small p, petty politics of the day. I'm talking about something that's much more important, even if it has the power to make us feel even more uncomfortable. I'm talking about politics as idolatry. Because the way in which we do politics can easily morph into idolatry. Because we've seen a huge shift. As faith has declined in America, people are looking for a worldview that can help categorize the world around them. And political parties are very happy to step up and fill that gap. So it's no surprise that political fervor and engagement is at an all-time high when church participation is at an all-time low. In our time, we have to see that our political lives are breeding grounds for idolatry. The temptation is there in the news to make everything ultimate, right? Every new policy is presented as an existential battle for the soul of a nation. We have to fight and fight and fight to make sure those people over there don't destroy our great nation. And for our purposes, it doesn't matter who those people are, by the way. But if we don't fight, America might cease to exist. That's the narrative, right? Now let me be clear. I love this country. This evening, I'm going to a baseball game, I'm eating hot dogs, I'm watching the fireworks, and I'm getting the chills when they play the national anthem. On Tuesday, I'd encourage you to read the Declaration of Independence because it's as brilliant as it is beautiful. But it's this country, though it's mine, it's not eternal. It's my home here and now. It's my city for a while, and I'll work for the good of it. But one day, we're all headed home. When we love America as our earthly city, our earthly home, we can practice good patriotism. We can feel a properly ordered love for our country, but that's the key. For Augustine, patriotism demands that we keep our country second and our God first. See, if we flip the order, we have treated our country as the highest good, as the most important thing, and if we do that, we've crossed that threshold once again into idolatry. And for Augustine, at least, that's no longer patriotism. That's some odd corruption of it. When we see our nation as an earthly city, we can work for the good of it. We can love our neighbors. We can work with others, doing the work that God has given us to do, fulfilling the mission of God to serve those around us. But when we start to view our nation as the highest kingdom, the highest end, we're practicing idolatry. You can watch church services on July 4th, and come away confused as to who or what is being worshipped. When we look at our nation, if we look to our nation to fulfill the desires of our heart, we're going to be disappointed at best and dangerous at worst. 
American identity says, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and work your way up to a better position. And that works well in the earthly city, perhaps, but not in the kingdom of God. These are not easy teachings. Christ brings brings a sword into our families, our community, and our country. He's forcing us to decide between the kingdoms of heaven and the, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of earth. Between those things which are good but are of this world, and those things which are perfect above. None of this is easy. The pruning is painful. And if the sword cuts too close, aren't we just going to be left alone again? Aren't we just going back into that world I mentioned last time? Is Christ forcing us then to be solitary, solitary, lonely travelers on the road? Does he want us to be hermits who live in isolation? Can I ask any more rhetorical questions? I don't think so. Life for believers isn't easy in this world. It's not. But in the words of St. Ringo, we get by with a little help from our friends. The last section of the gospel for this morning offers the hospitality awards, as scholar Dale Bruner calls them. Whoever receives the citizens of the kingdom of God receives God himself. Whoever provides hospitality to those who are carrying the fire are helping to carry the fire themselves. See, when Christ brings a sword, he calls us to himself, but he also calls us to a people. When Christ calls us, perhaps, away from our earthly family, he does not leave us alone. He gives us a new family with a new command to love one another. Other families may have success or the appearance of success or having it all together as the mark of a good family, but in Christ's family, love is the highest law. When Christ puts us at odds with community, he does not make us wander alone. He provides for us a new covenant people whose lives are marked by generosity and genuine care for one another. Y'all, the statistical difference between those who are in a church community and those who are not right now is staggering. Church is not a podcast where you download some information and bounce. It's a flesh and blood community with warts and BO and all the stuff that makes us human. Finally, when Christ's sword slices our relations to our country, our own people, he gives us one that is far better. Instead of these places that are passing away, he calls us to be a part of his new kingdom, which is breaking into this world and which will have no end. Try as we might, there's simply no way to avoid conflict. Conflict is only possible because we feel the tension that we live in, in these two worlds. And yet this conflict will one day be resolved. Because one day that heavenly city, that new Jerusalem will descend and God will reign over all the earth. And when that final conflict, that final battle has ended, the old will have passed away, and behold, the new will come. But until then, we walk together, and we wait together, and we eat together. Not forsaking the gathering together as some have done, but walking together the path that Christ has prepared for us. We carry the fire of Christ into our earthly cities until he calls us home. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you that you are the one who brings peace and the one who brings conflict, the one who carves away that which is not of you, that we might see you more in us. We ask that you will guide us in this time, that you will prepare our hearts to receive your feast. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.